I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Charlotte Gray joins me again. The distinguished historian and biographer has just published a dual biography of two remarkable women, Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons, The Lives of Jenny Jerome Churchill and Sarah Delano Roosevelt. They're two women born in close proximity to one another in the late 19th century in the Gilded Age of the United States upper class in and around New York. As Jenny Jerome makes her way to the glittering world of uh, Imperial London and Sarah remains prosperous in the Hudson Valley, their respective lots in life are of the era, and yet they become formidable women in worlds that uh, aren't necessarily welcoming of women in important roles. It is later their sons, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, um, that um, take up a lot of space for historians and biographers, but it's their relationship to their mothers and their mother's devotion to their sons that make uh, this book important as we see how they shape their uh, sons' characters and personalities. This is a hell of a good read. And Gray's skill in research and her talent at crafting a marvelous story as a result are a wonder. Uh, the British-born Charlotte Gray is one of Canada's best-known writers, the author of ten acclaimed books of literary nonfiction. These are books that are bestsellers as well as award winners. She first appeared on the program in 2013 for her book, The Massey Murder, a critical hit and a bestseller. She is a member of the Order of Canada and a recipient of the Pierre Burton Prize and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Visit charlottegray.ca for more. This new book is published by Simon & Schuster. We spoke two weeks ago. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Charlotte Gray. Ms. Gray, good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. I was just telling you as we started how much I enjoyed the book. I couldn't put it down um, in the in the two days I was reading it. Um, these are um, two women in particular who, uh, when discussed in relation to their sons, haven't always been painted in a sympathetic, accurate light. Um, did you see one of your tasks in, in, in writing this book as sort of rescuing them, if you will? Yes, I wanted to see them on their own terms, not simply as the mothers of great men. And I'd read biographies of Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill and was intrigued by the fact that that usually male biographers of great men feel the need to denigrate the mothers as though it was necessary to say, you know, despite the early um, challenges of uh, his childhood, he emerged as this uh, extraordinary individual. And so the mothers played no role in the nurturing of that extraordinary individual. So I was definitely wanting to disinter them from history and from <clears throat> the shadows of their sons. But I also wanted to know what they were like. Yeah. Because they're exclusively seen as mothers in most books. But in fact, they were pretty lively and intriguing women in their own you know, in their own selves. Yeah, and you, you set the, the scene for us in the book uh, early on about how, how similar they are, uh, both American, both from the same part of the country, uh, both from same the uh, same sort of economic background, and how over time they divert, they, you know, divert from that. Uh, uh, Jenny Jerome especially, um, going to England, um, by the way, when was it that you discovered that they were in the same city at the same time, Paris in 1867? That was that was actually a wonderful discovery. Uh, 
I was sort of reading the family history um, simultaneously and suddenly thought, oh, wait a minute, here I am in Paris with Sarah Delano, as she was then, uh-huh. and Jenny's there. The frustration for me was that I could never, ever find the evidence that they'd actually met because that would have been, you know, made my life easier. <laughs> right. But I just know that, in fact, they were very likely to have met because it was a small expatriate community in uh, Paris uh, during those years, and their families certainly knew each other, so they would have definitely been in the same room together. And and so the, the, the families knowing one another, uh, they would have known each other, I guess, in social circles, but they weren't r- really friendly, were they, their parents especially, right? No, because although <clears throat> we look back and we see two young women, both born in 1854, um, both coming from the very, very sort of top 1% of mm-hmm. um, the American population, both wealthy families, there was a huge divide between them. Jenny and the Jerome family were new money. Her father was a speculator and investor who'd begun with almost nothing. The Delanos, Sarah's family, in contrast, were so proper, so established. They were old money, and they found Arabists like the Jeromes really a little too vulgar for their taste. Yeah, in a way, as I was reading the book, I, I kind of thought that, that that Sarah Delano would have would have probably been more at home in England than say Jenny found herself, right? That's right. Although it has to be said that Jenny has this brilliant aptitude for being a chameleon. Mm. She adapted very easily to different societies. She would sort of observe how people behaved and then take on the mannerisms and sort of the accents and the behaviors and learn them so well that she could merge, first of all, when she was a teenager into French society when she moved to Paris, and then when she moved in 1870 to London, um, then she started mixing with the British aristocracy and was very acceptable to them. Yeah, she eventually became uh, friends, uh, Jenny did, with, with um, I guess, the Prince of Wales would become Edward Seventh. is that right? Yes, he, yeah. he, uh, the Prince of Wales was a sort of quite glamorous character who loved pretty women. And he also liked witty, well-educated women. And it has to be said that the aristocracy in Britain had never really bothered to educate their daughters. So when Jenny comes along and she's bilingual and funny and a brilliant pianist, he's quite charmed. Yeah. Um, the, uh, money plays a, a great deal. Uh, in uh, both their lives, I guess, uh, Jenny especially later on. Um, there's a section in the book where you talk about, uh, say, uh, the marriage between uh, Randolph Churchill and Jenny Jerome, uh, how much negotiation there was in terms of a dowry. Um, and um, th- these weren't um, insignificant sums of money that we're talking about, right? They were not insignificant. And... Um the issue with Jenny is that she was wildly extravagant, and she never learned uh, to control her spending impulses. And, in fact, her son, Winston Churchill, was pretty much the same. He, right. too, throughout his life, was wildly extravagant and often in debt. But um, the when Jenny and Randolph Churchill, much to their parents' horror, 
became engaged, the sticking point was really how much money would Jenny's American father give to uh, as his daughter's dowry? Because this was the period when the British aristocracy were suddenly going wildly into debt. Their sources of income were drying up, and their stately homes were falling apart. And they were hoping that American brides to their son and sons and heirs would rescue them financially. And we're talking here millions of, of dollars that mm. uh, they hoped the, the American brides would bring to the table. The Jeromes had nothing like that kind of money. And this was a bo- real bone of contention for Winston, for Randolph's father, mm. the, uh, the Duke of Marlborough. And um, in Sarah's case, she married much later than Jenny. Um, she had more money in that marriage than, than uh, James Roosevelt. Is that right? That's right. I mean, another striking difference between these two women was their financial status, whereas Jenny was sort of always furiously borrowing money. Sarah was very wealthy. She bought to the marriage um, Delano Millions. And she also married a wealthy man, James Roosevelt. And money was absolutely never, absolutely never an issue for Sarah. And what it did allow her to do, which Jenny could never do for her ambitious son, Sarah was able to use her money to support Franklin Roosevelt's political campaigns, to uh, help him with his expenses when he was, first of all, governor of the state of New York and then president, uh, because in neither of those roles did he have uh, a really inadequate salary. She used her money very strategically to further her son's career. Uh, back to um, the, their parents for just a sec, Charlotte. Um, how did their parents' marriages, how did that shape or, uh, how they viewed the institution themselves? Because they, they both end up marrying um, uh, Jenny more than once, um, but, but but I guess what, the marriages that they entered into were those say norms in those social circles and those economic sort of families, if you will. <clears throat> That's such a good question because in fact both these young women shocked their parents by their marriages. Although at one level they were marrying within their class, mm-hmm. which was expected of them. But first of all. Jenny married Lord Rand- was engaged to Lord Randolph Churchill within three days of meeting him. Um, and although he was a catch because he was the son of a duke, he was actually not the oldest son, so he wasn't going to inherit the title. In fact, um, Sarah was slower to get married. She was at 26, which was considered then very old. Uh, she married <laughs> yeah. um, a neighbor from down the road. Um, and he was 26 years older than her, and her parents were quite shocked. When James Roosevelt started courting Sarah, coming to call on her, Sarah's father thought that uh, he was coming to see him. He didn't imagine that his daughter had caught the, sight, caught, caught the eye of this elderly widower. So both young women sort of made their own decisions of who they were to marry, and both believed very strongly in the sanctity of marriage. And this, for Jenny, would prove very stressful because Randolph Churchill turned out to be a really difficult man to be married to. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was um, 
arrogant, demanding, um, often quite cruel to her and to her to, to their children, and increasingly ill. He may have had syphilis. He may have had a brain tumor. We're not quite sure. But uh, his behavior became incredibly erratic. But she was loyal till the end for him. I mean, she believed in the marriage vows and that marriage was marriage was a solid institution, even if uh, one or other of the partners should have strayed from fidelity. Mm. Her father was totally loyal to his family, although he usually had a mistress on the side. And she was totally loyal to Randolph Churchill, although she did have affairs uh, when Randolph just disappeared and ignored her. In contrast, Sarah, Sarah was never dreamt of having affairs because she was much more proper and much more conventional. And she, too, believed in a fairly old-fashioned view of marriage as a partnership for life. Mm. But she also proved to be not the sort of sweet, deferential wife that much Victorian literature suggested was the appropriate behavior for a woman. She turned out to be much more strong-willed, and James Roosevelt soon discovered that his formidable wife would overrule his judgment on many occasions. That's the thing I kept wondering, Charlotte, as I was reading the book, is, is had um, either Sarah or Jenny um, grown up in a different era, subsequent era especially, how different their lives would have been? And do you it's wonder so about that? Thinking, isn't it? Yes, I wondered about it all the time. I think um, for sure Jenny's life would have been very different because she would have been allowed to take public initiative um, in a way that she she tried to within her own lifetime and was quite successful but was considered very unusual for doing. Like, for example, she organized a hospital ship to in 1900 to take the wounded so, wounded British soldiers Who'd been, who'd been fighting in South Africa. She organized a ship that, and then sailed on it from England to South Africa to rescue the wounded. She started a literary magazine. She was a fundraiser for a national theater. These were all public initiatives, which not many people of her class were um, getting involved in that kind of activity. Similarly, Sarah, very traditional, much less... Um, inclined to take public initiatives in that way, although very conscious of her responsibilities as a large landholder in the um, Hudson Valley, mm -hmm. her responsibility to the people who worked for her. But she would have played a much larger role today, I'm convinced, because she was just a very capable woman, and she'd have been recruited for all kinds of um NGOs and uh, philanthropic activities. Yeah, um, it, it, I found it interesting reading um, in in the book about suffrage, um, because it, it is an issue that that's coming up in in this time, um, and and I'm sure uh, both Sarah and Jenny would have known of Susan B. Anthony, uh, Elizabeth Stanton, Mrs. Pankhurst, even in England, I think by this time. Yeah. Um, how, how did Jenny and or Sarah view? the idea of getting the vote, say? They, neither of them were advocates for votes for women. Neither of them thought that women needed the vote. They thought that um, they <coughs> that uh, that was a male realm, that politics was 
um, a man's responsibility. Um, at this point, you know, women couldn't vote. They couldn't hold public office. There was a sense that there was a clear division between the private domestic sphere and the public um, political sphere. So both of them, really, and they both abhorred the more sensationalist behaviors of some suffrage advocates, uh, public demonstrations, for instance, or oh. disrupting election meetings. Both of them came round to be to being supporters for votes for women because of their sons. Mm. Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill realized they could see which way the tide was running. They could see that women were going to get the vote, and they didn't want to be stuck with the label of being sort of hopelessly stuffy. So they endorsed suffrage for women, and their wives followed suit. Yeah. Their mother, sorry, their mothers followed suit. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of, because again, history has given us this view of, of their relationship with their sons. Um, in, in terms of motherhood itself, um, did they, because um, as soon as Winston is born, um, he, he, I guess she sort of leaves him with, with, a, with a nanny, right? Um, That's right. So how involved were they with sort of even just physically with their children? Jenny took the um, path that most aristocratic mothers in those days took. She, After she'd given birth, the baby was handed over to a nanny and really raised by a succession of uh, nannies and then governesses and then um, a boarding school. Uh, she has been castigated by... Uh, Winston's biographers as being uncaring, mm -hmm. but she wasn't doing anything that many other women of her class weren't doing too, and she had this sort of added challenge of having to look after a very difficult and demanding husband who took up a lot of her emotional bandwidth. Sarah, in contrast, she was absolutely devoted to Franklin from the start. <clears throat> she'd had, he'd had a very difficult birth, she was told that she probably shouldn't have any more children because it would threaten her health. Mm -hmm. So she just poured all her emotional resources into raising this little boy. She kept sacking nannies and governesses because she felt that they were intruding on the mother-son bond. And she wept when she had to cut Franklin's baby curls when he was five. And when he went off to boarding school, if he, she didn't get a letter from him, uh, twice a week, she'd call the head of the school to ask if Franklin was sick. I mean, she was the helicopter parent before the phrase was invented. <laughs> right. So it was a complete contrast. But both women were able to really focus on their sons as never before. When they became widowed, both their sons were just reaching sort of the end of their adolescence when the fathers died. Uh -huh. And Sarah continued to be monitor Franklin's life very, very closely and to be a large part of it. Jenny, at this point, really pivots into being a superbly um, caring mother for Winston and pre um, promoting his interests, massaging all her amazingly powerful friends and her networks to uh, help find opportunities for Winston to write articles for newspapers and to get extremely good commissions in the army. By the time they're 20, both boys have their mother's full attention. 
Yeah, there's a beautiful moment in the book where, um, as uh, Churchill, you know, had had worked as a war correspondent and, and had dabbled in politics, um, and had published, I think, five books at this point. She decides to to write her own book, and um, um, she, she he plays the role that that she played for him early on in his writing career, right? Yes, and at this stage, it's actually it's a rather sweet. Re- snapshot when you read their letters and it's they're sometimes almost more as if it's between brother and sister advising each other on their literary efforts and editing each other's work than sort of the mother-son relationship yeah um i, I couldn't help but think um um as i was reading the book about um pamela harriman and um her relationship with her son who who was uh, winston churchill's grandson it, it's um, funny how these things work. Generation, I guess they skip a generation, but sort of the same patterns evolve again, don't they? That they do absolutely. And um, I mean, Randolph Churchill, Winston's son, mm-hmm. who married Pamela Harriman um, as, as she became, um, he was also very difficult and demanding, and it was a very difficult relationship that he had with his parents, and. Um, and then Pamela Harriman's subsequent um, career uh, and her various marriages. There are obvious parallels with Jenny. Yeah, but both Americans and... and um, um, well, Pamela Harriman actually wasn't American. She oh, was no, she was, Eng- she was English, that's right. And then she, yeah. she became an American later yeah. um, and died in France, um, <laughs> bringing us back to Paris, I guess, and... In your book, um, the um, the marriages that their sons would have, the wives that they would take, if you will, um, the, the decision in marrying uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, Ele- she, she was Eleanor Roosevelt, wasn't she? That was yes, her maiden name. Um, and and marrying Clementine in the case of uh, Winston. Um, that ob- the, the mothers obviously had an influence in in what happened with their marriages, right? Well. In both cases, um, the mothers had quite unexpected uh, reactions. First of all, Sarah, the first to become engaged was Franklin Roosevelt, mm-hmm. um, who became engaged to his 19-year-old cousin when he was in his early 20s. And it was a total shock to Sarah. It wasn't what she wanted to happen at all. She thought that she and Franklin were going to live in Manhattan together while he studied law. <clears throat> then she discovered that uh, he'd become engaged to a young woman who, although as far as Sarah was concerned, she was the right class, she was so young and so unformed. And frankly, Sarah didn't want to share Franklin with anybody. But the what she discovered was that Eleanor was a fairly fragile person. Eleanor had an absolutely wretched childhood. And she very quickly realized that Eleanor would become very dependent on her because Sarah was so competent. Mm. In no time at all, in fact, it really was a sort of a, a threesome that Eleanor did everything that Sarah told her to do, turned to Sarah for help all the time, and relied on Sarah to help with a very large family because within 10 years, Eleanor and Franklin had six children, five of whom survived, and would often just completely sort of 
it was the chaos of young parenthood. And Sarah would swoop in and take away the two oldest children or live in the household to make sure everything was running okay. Eleanor was very, very grateful in the early years for the amount of help Sarah gave them. But Sarah, of course, was rather imperious. And Eleanor was still too young to say, well, wait a minute, I think I'll make that decision, not mm. you. Similarly, when Winston married, in fact, I think probably Jenny was quite relieved because Winston was in his 30s by the time he got married to uh, Clementine Hosier. And Clementine's mother had been a great friend of Jenny's. And Jenny was keen to promote the marriage because she really began to wonder whether Winston was ever going to stop politicking enough to look around and realize all his friends were married. And she was very, very happy to see Winston um, make a, 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 a love match, as she had always done, rather than marrying for money, even though the Churchills, as usual, were deeply in debt. But um, Clementine found her mother-in-law, frankly, exasperating because Jenny was uh, spent so much money on clothes. And all Clementine could see was, you know, how much Winston adored his mother yeah. and felt Clementine felt she'd have to share Winston. In the end, she didn't. It was a very happy marriage. And Clementine grew quite fond of um Jenny, but then Jenny died quite suddenly, and uh, Clementine and Winston had what's become a really legendarily successful political marriage. Yeah, um, you, you um, got to go to, to these places in in the Hudson Valley and in in New York City. That um, yes, the, and and I've been to that house there on I guess it's Sixty Fifth and Park. Um, that's the, the shared house. Yeah, that, that's a funny story in terms of, of uh, it, it's viewed as a gift to, to this, this young couple, but soon uh, <laughs> Eleanor finds out otherwise, right? Well, yes. Sarah promises Franklin and Eleanor, she gives them a drawing of a house, a Manhattan townhouse, that she's going to have built for them. Uh, she gives the drawing as a Christmas present, but then when they look at the plans, they realize it's actually a double house. It has two front doors, and there's two houses right next to each other with, with doors between the adjoining houses on three of the floors. And Sarah's going to live in one half, and her son and daughter-in-law in the other half. And as Eleanor sort of matures and becomes sort of more resistant to her mother-in-law, she gets more and more resentful about this because she feels that uh, Sarah's always next door, thinking that she can just march in any time she likes. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm actually going to be speaking in Roosevelt House in uh, October. I'm looking forward to, to doing that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful uh, building, which is, I guess, now a, 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 a school, right? Is that right? It, it's, part of, um, it's part of the university, that's correct. Yeah. Um, and, and we see also... A, um, her, her reaction, uh, Eleanor, re Eleanor Roosevelt's reaction to um, the, the house up in... Um, uh, in the Hudson Valley. Yeah, in, in Hyde, Park. Uh, Hyde Park. That, that uh, she eventually, uh, uh, thanks to Franklin, has to, to move into her own house there, right? Yes. Again, Eleanor's trying to put distance between herself and her mother-in-law because as Eleanor 
as the children grow up and Eleanor becomes sort of more aware of herself and her own ambitions, and she makes her own friends and she starts uh, addressing meetings herself. She starts um, teaching in Manhattan, <clears throat> and she wants she relies on Sarah to, for continued help with the children, but she really doesn't want to be in her house. And Franklin encourages her to build a house, a little cottage on the property of Hyde Park, which is the mansion in which he grew up mm -hmm. in Hyde Park. And he encourages it, I think, because too often he's caught between his mother and his wife, and he thinks a bit of physical distance will be uh, take the pressure off him. So Eleanor does move out of uh, Hyde Park, except on sort of occasions when she has to be there. And Hyde Park, you go and visit there now, and you realize that it is, in fact, a monument not so much to Franklin Roosevelt, although he had it for his whole life. He was born there, and he used to go there regularly when he was president. Mm -hmm. But it's a monument to his mother, Sarah, because uh, she was the one who adapted it to his use. She adapted it so he could use it when he was in a wheelchair after he caught polio. And after she died, her son, Franklin, kept it absolutely as it was. He refused Eleanor's request that they might change the, a few things around. He refused it. He, he wanted it kept exactly as his mother had left it. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the change in the relationship between Sarah and Eleanor, was that because of polio or is that because of, say, uh, Missy Lahand or Lucy Rutherford? And, uh, the, it was... It was the, the really dramatic change came, I think, as Eleanor got more involved in her own activities. Mm. I mean, in the early... There were two dramatic events in the Roosevelt marriage. The first was in 19... 18, 19, when um, Eleanor discovered that her husband had been having an affair with Lucy Mercer, who had been working as his secretary, in fact, for Eleanor. And this was devastating for Eleanor. She could never forgive her husband for this. And she, in fact, she offered to divorce him, which was almost unthinkable in those days. And Sarah said that absolutely there was not going to be a divorce. If there was going to be a divorce, she wouldn't give Franklin a penny. She was so shocked by it. Mm -hmm. And Sarah kept the marriage glued together. After that, Franklin and Eleanor never slept in the same bed again. The sex in their marriage was over. Two years later, Franklin gets polio, is disabled, and it looks like he can no longer pursue his political career. Eleanor begins to get involved, though, in politics at that stage and into various progressive causes. And at that point, everybody goes their separate ways in some respects. Franklin spends most of the 1920s trying to be, recover the ability to walk. Mm -hmm. Eleanor's developing her own career. And Sarah's helping a lot with her grandchildren, but also traveling wi wi widely. Um, but then when Franklin, in fact, re-enters politics. Sarah's there. She's helping pay for this uh, campaign. And, uh, again, Eleanor doesn't like having to be the wife of, first of all, the governor of New York, and then being the wife of the president. 
And so Sarah steps in, and she's the matriarch in the White House uh, in the early years. And th again, they're sort of bristling. Sarah was just turns a blind eye to Eleanor's resentment. Mm -hmm. And Eleanor seethes with resentment. And that resentment really comes out after both Sarah and her son, Franklin, have died, one in 1941, the other in 1945. And Eleanor, by then, has emerged as a terrific advocate for social justice courses and the United Nations. And she starts writing memoirs. She writes three altogether. Mm -hmm. And each subsequent one becomes more bitter about her mother-in-law. Yeah, it's fascinating to read in, in your book um, uh, how she is publicly in those books as opposed to, say, letters that she would write other people. That she, she was more scathing, wasn't she? Yes, she, she and says, you know, I never loved her, and she, um, she, she never sort of really moved aside and let me be a, a wife. And Frank, I mean, the truth was that Franklin was incredibly fond of his mother and found her company quite restful. Whereas Eleanor was always challenging him and wanting him to do more mm -hmm. and for her various causes and resenting her mother-in-law for always taking Franklin's side. I alluded uh, to uh, Jenny's memoirs earlier. Um, what were they like to read in terms of, of um, say, how reliable they were for you as a historian? They were deeply unreliable. It's quite funny to read them because um, she wanted to give a certain impression of her life, and she wanted to um, talk about all the important people she knew and the good times she'd had and um, the uh, really the excitements of her childhood, <clears throat> which included you know, watching the uh, fall of the um, Second Empire uh -huh. in Paris. But she didn't want to talk about what had really happened and... So and and then some details she just omits altogether, like the birth of her son Winston, and or the unhappiness in her marriage, or the affairs she's had, and there's a lot. And she sort of runs out of steam halfway through and just sticks in a whole lot of letters mm. from old friends. So it's funny to read because you can sort of see what she's doing. But I also I actually emphasise quite a lot because I used to. You can tell I come from England, and when I first arrived here, I would write regularly to my mother mm -hmm. and always sort of putting the best possible gloss on whatever was happening in my life. You never tell the whole story. And that's what Jenny did in her memoirs. But you, I had to go to other sources to find out what was really happening. And in the course of your research, Charlotte, um, uh, viewing these other sources, what, what were you able to, to surmise as to, to what the relationship was with um, the Prince of Wales? My guess, and there is absolutely no evidence one way or another, but there's a lot of speculation and some people claim certainty, my guess is that they became good friends quite quickly because uh, he enjoyed her company so much and she knew that it enormously enhanced her social appeal if uh, she was seen to be close to the Prince of Wales. I think they prob almost certainly did have a, a, a sort of light-hearted affair soon after um, Winston died. Winston was born. Uh -huh. But then there was a, a big scandal involving 
her brother-in-law, the heir to the Duke of Marlborough. And um, she and the Duke of Marlborough and his wife and Randolph and Jenny had to go and live in Ireland for four years. And at that stage, I think that the affair was over. But once she came back to London, at that stage, they, she and the prince revived this wonderful, lively friendship. And he was always fond of her and he was always sort of loyal to her. And when she goes to Paris after her husband has died, he comes to visit her and writes her sweet notes. He has a string of mistresses and there are sort of a couple of mistresses who are regarded as his um, his sort of chief, chief paramours. Right. Um, and she's not one of them. She also, though, becomes very good friends with his wife, Princess Alexandra. Um, and so it's really possible to, to see her, I think, as somebody who'd had a fling with the prince and then just became a good friend. Right, right. Um, it, this book is unique um, uh, in that um, you're writing about two women who have been um, not just portrayed in other books, say, but um, in film and in television. Um, Lee Remick in the... Uh, uh, miniseries and Bancroft in the movie Young Winston. Um, we see Sarah in the uh, Eleanor and Franklin miniseries as well as Sunrise at Campobello. What, what have you made, say, of, of how these women have been portrayed in, in um, the, the, the film and, and television sense? I think <clears throat> they've been portrayed um, sort of in a rather stereotypical manner. Jenny is usually seen as... Um, wildly attractive and charismatic, which there's absolutely no doubt she was, but nobody's ever really looked at sort of that she was creative and brave and um, wanted to get things done. I mean, she wrote a very funny play about uh, the power of women in politics, and that, that sort of added um, side to her character, that she was smart and she was intelligent and she was she read a lot that's never been captured and then in terms of sarah i mean sarah just comes across as a, the maggie smith character in um Downton Abbey. Abbey. <laughs> as, as this, uh, yeah. you know indomitable dowager who um is a source of the hilarity she's always just caricatured um, the, the um, I couldn't help but think of, of say, Downton Abbey and The Gilded Age, the uh, other Julian Fellow show, as I was reading the book, because you, you, you capture what it was like in that sort of Gilded Age of, um, of uh, New York City at the time so well in your book. And, and um, uh, again, when you think about why you were drawn to these women, um, uh, did, did you have a sense early on that, that, that there would be a, a relevant story here? I mean, I, I don't know if marriages are, are uh, speaking as someone who is unmarried, um, marriages are, are like that today, but, I mean, there are great lessons to glean from both of these women, right? Well, there are. <clears throat> I mean, I think one of the, and certainly lessons about motherhood, too, which is that there's no one way of uh, doing it. There's no cookie-cutter pattern for uh, the mother-son bond. Um, but a lot of it, what I'm trying to say is that uh, nurture plays as much of a role as nature in mm. forming a child's character. I think when I started off writing about these two women, I was attracted by the uh, coincidence of their 
births in the same place in the same year. And then this immense contrast between them in personality. And it was um, wonderful to explore that. In terms of the, the way women live their lives and how they have exerted agency in their lives, even when, you know, looking back from 2023, we think, oh, my God, they were so restricted. You know, they had no choices. They did have choices, and these two made them, and they made very different choices. And so I like doing the double helix of um, women's lives and setting them against the backlog of history so that I could actually tell a social history story as well as sort of tackle two biographies. It, it, the, the book is, is, is such fun to read. Um, was it fun to write? Was it fun to research? Um, it was great fun to re- I research. I always say there are two stages that I absolutely love when I'm writing a book. The first is research because um, that's a treasure hunt. And you have to be very thorough and you have to be um, look for and think about anything that might be relevant, however trivial. <laughs> and then the second stage I love is the um, once you've got a first draft, particularly if your editor likes it, because then you go back to work sculpting it. Um, but writing the first draft, especially during the COVID lockdowns, uh-huh. was uh, I found that actually pretty tough. Yeah, uh, and and, and uh, I hate to ask this question because you, you, this book is just out now and and um, you, you're promoting it. But are you working on something else? I'm thinking. I'm thinking about what I want to do next. I'll definitely do something next. And I, it won't be about uh, um, upper-class women again, I don't think. But <laughs> it will be, there will be um, feminist history, women's history in it. Because I love writing about women. I like writing about men, too. I did a biography. I loved writing about Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah. But I, um, so it's not that I have strong preferences each in for, for either gender. But it's just that uh, there are so many interesting women that just haven't been written about. You know, 50% of the human race is female, but about 99% of biographies are about men. Yeah. Well, this is, this is an extraordinary book. I, I so enjoyed it and so enjoyed talking to you today. Uh, congratulations on, on it. It's a very fine achievement and continued good luck with it. Thank you so much, Joe. It's lovely to hear you again, and it's great to have a conversation. The book is called Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons of the Lives of Jenny Jerome Churchill and Sarah Delano Roosevelt. Uh, it's uh, published by Simon & Schuster. Visit charlottegray.ca for more information. Uh, Charlotte Gray, join me on the line from Ottawa in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.